0: Um, If you are new, my name is Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us. Uh, If you're watching online, so glad we can serve you in that way that you can watch from home and hopefully get to meet you someday in person as well. Now, we've been going through the book of Acts and we're getting close to the halfway point. It's only taken a year and a half. We're almost halfway through, but we're getting there slowly as we just kind of go through each section of God's word, seeing what he would have for us. And as I was looking at this particular passage this week, it's going to be kind of an interesting passage as we kind of do this shift. But the question that kind of came up in my mind was this When you are under great pressure, when you are going through difficult times, where do you turn? Where do you look for relief from the thing that is causing you pain, distress, anguish? What do you do? I mean, do you turn to a parent? Do you turn to a loved one, a spouse, a friend, a mentor, uh, a professor at school maybe? Maybe you would go as far as to even talk to a pastor at some point and ask them what they're thinking. But why do we ask these certain individuals? Why are there people that we go to to ask for help when we're going through a difficult time? See, I believe that we are hoping in that moment they're going to bring some kind of insight that they're going to bring some kind of wisdom to the circumstance that you've missed, that they're going to bring some kind of encouragement that might be good for you, or they might even be able to get you through that situation because maybe they have the ability to change that situation in a way that you would want them to go. Well, When things get hard in my life, I've got probably two guys that I turn to on a regular basis. And and I go to them because I know that they have gone down the road that I'm on usually. Whether that's someplace in my own personal life or where I am with family or my spiritual development whether that is a professional that they go, I have been in your shoes. I have led a church. I've been the lead pastor. I've experienced these things. And and I know that they're not trying to get me to fail. They're always there because they love me and they care for me. They want to encourage me saying, hey, don't lose faith. Don't give up. God's called you to this. It's going to be good. We're going to get through it. And we need that to put gas in our tank at times. Now, Today, what we're going to look at in the section of scripture that we're in is going to play out the same way with the church. And the writer of Acts, Luke, is going to bring us back to the city of Jerusalem to see what's been going on there and what's currently taking place. We've been all over in the surrounding regions as we've kind of looked as the gospel spread. And all of a sudden we saw that it hit the Gentiles with Cornelius and his family and Peter stayed there for a while. And now he's back. And we're going to see what's taking place. So, if you have your Bibles, we would love for you to open them up to Acts chapter 12. We're going to go 1 through 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, if you're like, man, I don't don't have a Bible, I don't even know where to start. We have Bibles underneath the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, those are brand new Bibles. We'd love for you to take one, grab one, keep it, use it, read it. Uh, You can follow along with me or you can watch the screen as we go through. So let's read the section that we're going to be studying today. About that time, Harold, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was seeing a vision. "'where many were gathered together and were praying. "'And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, "'a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered. "'Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, "'she did not open the gate, but ran in "'and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. "'They said to her, you are out of your mind. "'But she kept insisting that it was so, "'and they kept saying, it is his angel. "'But Peter continued knocking.' And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this section of Scripture. Lord Jesus, uh, so grateful for this passage this morning. As we look at what is to be expected of the church and what's going to happen with the, your church. What it leads us to, who we turn to, is evidence of what we have placed our faith in. Lord, I ask that as we are in a time and an age where we're seeing the culture shift in ways that maybe we're not fond of, that this is not your first time around the block, but you have given your people what they need to be about the mission that you've called them to, to take the name of your Son forward and to live a life that reflects what God's family looks like. Encourage us this morning. Holy Spirit, Is anything that I have written that's not from you that shouldn't be said, I ask that you would take it from my mouth, my mind, my notes. If there's anything that I need to say specifically to this group of individuals, that you would give me the courage and the boldness, Holy Spirit, to speak it and proclaim it with your authority. I pray this in your name. Amen. So as we jump back into this passage, we see that there's a few things that are starting to happen, but a little bit of history will probably go a long way for understanding what's actually playing out here. And a few things are starting to kind of happen. The first person that we're introduced to is a man named Herod, and he's a ruler over Jerusalem. Now, you may have heard the name Herod before. Um, They're connected, but it's not the same guy. The Herod that we saw early on was the one when Jesus was born. Maybe you remember Herod the Great was his name. And when he found out there was going to be a threat to his kingdom, what did he do? He said there's going to be an edict, kill every firstborn uh, boy that's under this age, and there was a massive slaughter of Jewish men during that day. Well, this Herod we're talking about, that's his grandson. That's who we're talking about. So there is a connection to it, but it's not the same guy. It's a different guy. Now, we need to understand who the emperor of Rome was during that time as well. That was Claudius. So Claudius, um, he was the emperor, and his regions were expanding more and more and more. And there's something that happens. The bigger you get the harder it is to control your empire because you can't have your hands in everything. And so who you appoint to rule different areas becomes very important if you're going to keep the peace in your nation. And so what he did was he appointed Herod to be that guy. Now you may ask, why Herod? Was it because he had lineage to his grandfather? You would think that, but that's actually not the main reason why he did that. To keep the peace in the Palestine area, which is where Jerusalem was located, he picked Herod because Herod's grandfather had married a Jewish woman. And so that becomes really important. So technically, that made Herod a Jew by birth and by Jewish law. Now, who better to keep the peace with a bunch of people that aren't like you than someone that's like them? So you're going to get a Jewish guy to see over the Jewish people and to stay by what they followed and what they did and their rules and their commandments. So that's why Herod was put there. And Herod is very clear that he claimed the birthright of being a Jew. But we'll see that the reason that he claimed that birthright was not because he loved God, not because he cared about God, but because it allowed him to stay in power. To hold on to what he really worshipped was money, and fame, and prestige, and a name for himself. So... We see that these Jews were getting very, very frustrated with this people group called the Christians. We saw that last week, as Warren preached, I'm very grateful that Warren was able to preach last week, that that was the first time that God's people in the church were called Christians. Christian is a very simple name. It means little Christ. So we are to represent Christ. Do you want to know how you should live? Your name tells you in and of itself. To be a Christian means that you are to look like a little Jesus. That's what we're supposed to look like. That's who we are. And so what has happened is these men and women were living out what it looked like to be like Christ. And as they did that, it started to really frustrate the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were really getting upset. They were causing this disturbance with them. And so what he ends up doing, he says, well, I'm going to see if I can get the Jewish people more in line with me and on my side. So I'm going to identify their problem. I'm going to arrest one of their leaders. And then I'm going to kill him and then wait and see how they respond. And so he kills James. Now, this is not James, the brother of Jesus, This is James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, as they were known. Also, they had a nickname from Jesus. Anybody knows what it is? It's the sons of Thunder. What a great nickname. Like, if you're going to be in a motorcycle gang, that's the name that I think you want, one of the sons of Thunder. And so one of the sons of Thunder, James, is one who is killed. It's a horrible day in the church. And if you know James and John and Peter, you'll know that those three were the closest to Jesus in his ministry when he walked on the earth. These were kind of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem at that time. And so as Herod waited to see the response, the Jews were exceedingly happy with this decision. And as he saw that, He said, ah, if this made him happy, I'll just work my way down the row of the leaders. And the next guy he grabbed was Peter. And so he grabs Peter and throws him in jail as well. So we see really clearly it isn't about worshiping God. It's not about um, being in love with him. It's about staying in position, manipulating God's people to continue to stay in power. And this leads me to my first point, which is this. Persecution will come this is a fun message isn't it here we go we see very clearly that harold didn't love him but he loved his power he loved his position he loved his authority he loved his money he loved the house that he lived in and the things that all that came with that and he was willing to do anything to hold on to it even use god his word and his people to accomplish that very goal see It's interesting, like, what's the problem? James and the church, they weren't being violent. They weren't causing riots. They weren't trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, right? What were they doing? They were living the way that God had called them to live. They were, all they were doing was bringing truth and freedom to people that were enslaved. They were shining a light on the lies of the enemy. And the lies of the enemy are really, really good. Well, you need to do all these things to make God happy with you. We'd call that following the law. The problem is this. We're really bad at following the law. And so the enemy says, you have to follow the law for God to love you. But you can't meet God's standard. So that means that God doesn't love you, and you'll never reach God, and you'll never make Him happy, and you can never be connected to Him ever. And that is a lie from the enemy. And it keeps you in bondage. It keeps you separated from God. It doesn't allow you to have that freedom. And these Christians were shining a light on the fact that Jesus came and took care of the problem of not being able to achieve the law. He says, I fulfilled the law in my life in what I've done. And if your life is hidden in me now, God sees you as righteous and holy and clean, and my blood washes you clean, and you can stand before God, you can be in relationship with God where you once couldn't. That's the gospel message. And what happens is, as they were living this out, it was shedding the light on the fact of the oppression that sin brings. And here's the thing, powerful men and powerful women for many, many of thousands of years have used that to hold down people, to control them, to stay in power and they can get them to be reliant upon them, to control them, to manipulate them, to use God's word or any other religion to control them in a way that gets them to do what they want so they can continue to have the things that they desire. The God that they want is power and money and control. Luckily, it's not happening today in our society, which is really nice. (laughs) I mean, think about it today. Has anything really changed? Has anything really changed? Like, we keep talking about, like, you know, oh, why is the government giving us all these handouts? Why is the government doing all these things? And I'm not trying to be political. I'm just saying, like, if the government can get you to be reliant upon them, who controls you? It's, it's not crazy to think this, right? Like, it's not some crazy made-up idea. The more that the people are reliant upon the government, the more they can tell you what to think, what to do, what to say, where to worship, where you can go, and where you can't. And the Christian message brings freedom. It sets us free. It also exposes the brokenness and sin of the other group of people. And they don't want to be known for their sin. They don't want to be found out. And they don't want to be exposed. Free people are really hard to control. And Christians were becoming freer and freer every day through through Christ and what he had done for them. See, this is just what happened. Jesus came, and he was preaching forgiveness and freedom from sin as he did that. He knew what was going to happen to him. He alluded to it multiple times, like, hey, they're going to kill me. And they're like, no, no, they're not. He's like, no, they're going to kill me. This isn't going to go over well. As a matter of fact, we see this take place when Jesus is teaching his disciples. There's this really beautiful section where he says, you know, I am the the vine and you are the branches, those are connected to me. He he paints this beautiful analogy of who we are when we have submitted to Christ in him, that we are connected to Jesus. And then he goes into this next section that follows right after that beautiful sermon about the hatred of the world. That's in John 15, um, 20 through 21 say this. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. He's like, "Um, why are we surprised when we get treated the same way that jesus got treated if we're living the same way that jesus lived he's like it's gonna happen you guys like don't don't be surprised by this he would kind of move down the road a little bit more on that path saying like hey i know it's going to get a bit hard but i'm going to send you the holy spirit he's going to be the one that's going to be able to give you the power to proclaim jesus as lord jesus as the christ he's going to allow you to be bold in those moments where you don't want to be bold where you're fearful and then he tells them, why am I even telling you all this? And I, Jesus just says, hey, here's why I'm telling you everything. Like this persecution that doesn't sound fun to hear about. This idea of following Christ is going to be difficult and hard and the world's going to hate you. Why would I tell you this? So it says so in verse uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them that I told them to you. So why is he telling us? He doesn't want us to fall away. He doesn't want us to lose heart. He doesn't want us to question what it means to follow and to love Christ. Because here's what happens. When we do something and we don't get our desired results, what do we think we're doing? Something wrong. I must be doing something wrong. If I'm not getting this desired outcome, hey, I'm putting out peace and I'm putting out love and I'm caring for people and I'm being generous. Um, Shouldn't they be like reciprocating that in some way? And we think, I guess I'm doing it wrong. But the reality is, is he's saying, you're gonna think you're doing it wrong, but I'm telling you, you're not doing it wrong. On the contrary, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and you're getting the exact result that you should see by living in this way, in this world. It's almost like, hey, this is really hard. Take heart, be encouraged. (laughs) You're doing the right things, which is kind of just, it feels very off, right? But it's not. He's like, I I want you to remember all the time that this is what I said was going to happen. It doesn't mean that you're out of my will, even though others would say that you are, even though others would say that we're doing God's work by killing you. My friends, it is not a matter if persecution comes. It is when persecution comes. And let me tell you the temperature of the climate of this culture, that there is a shift that is happening. And if you are not prepared to understand how the world is going to view you as a Christian, you will be steamrolled over and demolished. That is the reality of what's going to happen. Jesus says we have to remember that truth is better than the lies of the world, even if it cost us our entire life. Because this is temporary where we are right now. It's bizarre how God's humor works because, like, it's like, wow, what a coincidence that today is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I'm like, what a coincidence. That joke makes more sense if you come on a regular basis, so I'm just not even going to tell you. (laughs) My question is this How will you respond when persecution comes? It's coming. You're like, oh, I had persecution this week. Someone unfollowed me. on that, that is not persecution. <laughs> that is the Lord saving you from that wicked tool called Facebook and Instagram. And I'm tongue-in-cheek, okay? But my question is this. As you follow Jesus, what will you do when the pressure hits? What will you do when people speak out against you for saying the truth of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross? What will you do when friends and classmates and coworkers start to ridicule you and get violent with you and treat you poorly? How will you respond? Will you cower back and, well, I won't say anything because I don't don't want them to treat me this way. Will you become timid? Will you run away? Will you just say, I I mean, I I thought I loved Jesus, but this is hard. I just, I don't want to do this. What are you going to do? Are you going to be bold in those moments? Are you going to trust the Holy Spirit to give you the power to take the message forward? What are you going to do in the face of an attack, verbal, physical? What are you going to do when death is looming near? How will you respond? Are you prepared for what's coming? See, we see in this passage the proper response to adversity and persecution and trials and difficulties. I remember when we started our church, uh, SOMA, out in Lancaster, California, and we prayed a lot. And here's why. Because any moment the church could have collapsed. Like, we could have lost a donor, someone could have left. Like, you're like, oh, a family left. That's a fourth of my church. Like, we can't lose a family. And so we prayed all the time that God would carry us. This church in Jerusalem is like, we are so fragile. We are, we just, if without God, we will collapse. And what we see is the proper response is they are utterly dependent upon God for everything that's happening in the church. See, Luke is going to lay out the problem. The problem is persecution. But he's also going to show us what the, re- the solution is, which is prayer. Which is my second point, is that Prayer matters. Prayer is not doing nothing, and for some reason we go, "Oh, it's gotten so bad. I'm at the end of my rope. I should, sorry, I should start praying." I'm like, "Is it, it got that bad? Did it? You finally had to start praying?" <laughs> Shouldn't we be picking up the rope in prayer before we even get started? Shouldn't that be the starting point? See, the church assuredly is hurt by the loss of James. He ate with them. He preached god's word he cared for them he made sure that they were loved and cared for and taught spiritually they he was their pastor and he's dead now and they're probably thinking about stephen when stephen was persecuted and he was martyred and they're like oh no another leader and they probably thought about their friends that saul had killed and how they had lost all these people for doing what for loving jesus for calling him the Messiah, for calling him the Christ, for calling him the Savior of the world. And now and now Peter's in jail. And they're like, what do we do? It's like, it's the next guy down the road. We're losing another leader. Like, we're not going to be able to survive. So they call out to the one who can do the impossible. We find the church huddled together, crying out to God, Now, they're said they're seen at Mary's house. So this isn't um, Mary, Jesus' mom. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. Now, we're going to learn about John Mark in the weeks that follow and who he is. And he's a great guy, and God does a huge work in his life. Um, But what we see is that ministry was done at the house of Mary. The church was functioning day in and day out in Mary's house. Mary was most likely a very wealthy woman uh, because she had a courtyard. She had a place big enough to have the church meet at. She had gates around her area. So we have all these hints talking about that she was, she said, she has servants. So we say, okay, well, clearly you're in a good position. Mary was a person of influence who had a lot of money and a lot of prestige in that area. And we'll see by the end of the passage, they don't turn to each other. Like, okay, everybody, let's huddle up, let's grab our money, let's make a strategy, let's figure it all out. That's not what they do. But they turn to God to be the one to solve the problem. And they go to God in prayer. And there's four things that we can see as they pray that we can get from this passage. The first one is this. And these may seem really basic. It's okay, I'm a basic guy. So I'm not not really heady. The Christians were praying to God. That's the first point when it comes to prayer. They were praying to God. They weren't praying to Buddha. They weren't praying to Allah. They weren't praying to uh, some kind of Hindu. They weren't, they weren't praying to the mountains, to the rivers, to the stars, to the universe. They weren't sending good vibes to Peter in jail. I'm sending good vibes. I'm sending good thoughts to you, Peter. Thanks for that. They weren't doing that, were they? They were praying to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. This is who They were praying to this God the one true god that's who they were praying to it's important that you know who you're actually praying to i heard someone try to explain like how to live their life last week and they had clearly no affili- affiliation with christ whatsoever and just like a lot of just you got to feel good and live this and do- i was like man i just i just my heart hurt like there's no hope in what you're saying. You're like you're not a there's 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 no one that you can look towards for this, but what we see is even more important. As they were praying, you ever been? Okay, Christians, hear me here. You ever been? at a a Christian meeting or a Christian life group or a Christian, and like, hey, would so-and-so pray? And they stand up and they start quoting scripture and they're using these big words and, oh, Lord, we thank you for the sanctification of the, you're like, I don't know what you're saying. And they go on for at least 20 minutes and you're like, that was a big prayer. And they're like, "It's, it's just, and you're like, I'll never pray ever in my life like that. So I will never pray ever like that. Jesus spoke about this actually a lot because there's praying to God and there's praying for others. And at times we see that we're trying to put on a show where we're actually like, look how godly and spiritual and amazing that I am. Look at all, let me flex some, some theology in my prayer so you guys know like where you stand in comparison to me. You're like, that would never happen in the church. <laughs> never. But what we see as they realized who they were praying to, they were entering into the presence of the almighty God of the universe, the one who holds life and death in the palm of his hands, the one who has created everything that we see, taste, feel, experience. He made that and he spoke it into existence. That's his power. That this is the same God that has loved us so deeply by sending his son to die for us, and yet we didn't deserve one ounce of that love. That's who we're praying to. There's a reverence there. Do you pray to God? Or do you pray for others? The second thing that we see is these Christians were praying together. We see that this is a trend that happens. Uh, James 5.16 would talk about it. Acts 2, 42 would kind of like a reminiscence to the early church and how they would pray together all the time. They prayed together. Why? Because one of the core things that the gospel does for us is it joins us to God and it joins us to others. That our God is a God that is bringing his people together in unity. There's a unity that exists with God's people. Living out the church is living in community. We are not meant to be these solo individuals that go off into the sunset by themselves. There are times that we are separated because of the circumstances in life, but you'll see the writers in the Bible always say how much they yearn to be with the body. It's like, I'm so glad to get rid of them. That's not what he says. That they are dying to be in community. That God is bringing us together. And why? To show the world what God's people look like when they live under his authority and rule and reign in their lives. That we would look counter-cultural to the world around us. How do these people live this way? Why are they so loving? Why are they so generous? Why do they keep forgiving each other all the time? should they be like hating each other? Not God's people. They act differently. See, we have been called on mission and on purpose to live out who God is and how we view him and how we serve others around us. See, the gospel brings us together. It doesn't drive us apart. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. When we talked about the one body and how we are one body together. Collectively, we come to God in agreeance for his provision and will in our lives. The question I would ask is this. How often do you pray with other Christians? Outside of dinner. <laughs> Just get that off the table. Pun intended. <laughs> How often do you pray with others? When's the last time you got together with two, three, four other Christians and just prayed together? There's power in doing that. We are saying we agree on who Jesus is and what he has made us, that we know that we're going to the one true God of the universe who loves us and cares for us and hears us. The third thing is these Christians were praying earnestly. means that they were praying with all their heart. It wasn't some flippant kind of hangout. This is a serious matter. They were serious about their prayer. They were serious about calling out to God. They believed that God was listening. They believed that He heard them. They believed that there was this God was the only God that could save Peter. There was no other way to do it. They believed that God would give them strength to continue as the church, to be on mission, to go out into the world to share the truth of Jesus Christ. They were earnest about it. But it also says this, the fourth one is this, that Christians were praying specifically. They were praying specifically. They were laser-focused on what They were supposed to do they were praying for Peter to be released They wanted their pastor out of jail and as a pastor I think that you should all take note if I ever get thrown in jail I expect all of you to pray these four ways so I can get out. That's what I want (laughs) Here's what it reminds me of and I would say this and I, I I I love our church so much I say it a lot, and you're like, you say it too much. I also tell my kids I love them a lot, too, so they can never say, you never said you didn't love me. I know, you heard it. I love you guys so much. I loved a couple weeks ago when we said, hey, we're just going to do a hard pause, and we're going to pray for Etta's sister. And we just stopped, and we prayed for Etta's sister. And we just lifted her up. We lifted the doctors up. We asked that they would remove the tumors and that she would get through the surgery. It was very rushed. And you know, God answered that prayer and she came out of the surgery and they got the tumors out and she's recovering now and Etta is serving her at the house. It's it's a beautiful thing. It's super cool. And I just felt like that moment, Like that's what we did. We just said, God, we want you to answer this prayer. So you're like, okay, so what I heard was this, Simon, that we prayed collectively and we got the answer we wanted. And this church prayed collectively and they got the answer that they wanted. So as long as we pray together, we're always gonna get the yes that we want. No, no, not even close. (laughs) I just want you to know that. I don't wanna uh, paint this false picture. God will give you three, one of three answers every time you pray. What are they? Yes? No? Wait. I'll take not yet, wait. Any of those work for me. <laughs> You're like, I don't like the not, not yet one. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't either. <laughs> so here's the thing. These people loved Peter and they prayed for him. And we see that they answered that prayer and he gets released. Um, I'm just going to throw this out here. Do you think the church was praying for Peter when he was about to get crucified, when they were going to hang him upside down and he was going to die? You think that they may have prayed that that wouldn't happen? And did God answer that prayer that way? No, he died. He was crucified. He died. So we don't always understand why God does what he does when he does it, but he allows us to cry out to him and petition him to seek him out question in the prayer section is this, what does your prayer life look like? Do you carve out time during the day to pray? Do you carve out time during the week? Do you carve out time once a month, once a year? Last week, I didn't uh, didn't preach, and so I I had all these things to do, and I kept saying, oh, I need to get away for a day of prayer. I need to get away for a day. I keep saying this all the time, like, oh, once a month. It's happened like once a year, and I'm like, I need to get away, and it's like, why don't you just go pray? I'm like, all right. And I just got in the car and I drove away. I just drove and I prayed all day. And I'm like, I needed that so bad. I needed that so bad because it's so easy to try to do everything in your own power. But what does your prayer life look like? What would you like to see change in your prayer life? What is God saying? Like, hey, what would it look like to carve out 10 minutes a day? What would it look like to carve out one day a month, one day a year where you just seek out God and you pray and ask him to speak to you? And not just ask him for stuff, like praise him and worship him for who he is because he deserves that worship. He deserves that glory. He deserves that honor. Third point Jesus saves us. All right. So we go back to Peter. Peter's in jail, chained between two guards, multiple soldiers blocking doors, giant iron gates. And um, why did Herod throw him in jail and not just kill him? Well, funny how god works it was passover and there's this rule that you can't kill anyone during passover if you're a jew and he's like next week and so he puts him in jail he's like but i ain't gonna let him get away i'm gonna get this guy and so he chains him up so he's literally he's got these 16 guys that are their whole job is to make sure that peter's there next week to be killed like, I feel so special that you would sit 16 guys to be here to care for me. And so he is chained one arm to each, each guard. They're on either side. He's in his cell, and you're going, man, this is going to be crazy. So we need to understand something about Passover. So if you don't know a lot about the church, if you don't know about Passover, Passover was a celebration that was done every year, and it was remembering this event that took place for the Israelites. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh, and he had held them down. He had used them to to do all the work that he had done, and they cry out to God, and God hears their prayers, says, I am going to save you. He sends Moses. And long story short, he's like, hey, I'm going to send these 10 plagues so they'll let you go. And uh, Pharaoh's like, no, 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 yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, no. He kind of went back and forth a lot. He's a little bipolar in that. Didn't do it. And so then he he says, I'm going to send this last plague. And the angel of death is going to come over every single home. And every firstborn male will die in the house. Doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, firstborn male is going to die. And then God says, but I'm going to provide a way out of that. And if you take this lamb and you sacrifice this lamb and you take the blood and you paint it over the doorpost of your house, the angel of death will pass over that home and you won't die. Okay, that was the big idea. It's it's really painting the picture for what Jesus is going to do for us. That Jesus was going to die. He's known as the Lamb of God. That he died. That his blood was poured out. And now his blood is painted over the doorpost of our hearts. And so now... The angel of death will pass over us as well. Do you see the beautiful picture that God is painting here? Well, we see it's Passover, so he can't get released. It's the night before. And what is Peter doing? He's about the night before he's about to be murdered. Sleeping the sleep that every one of us desire every single night. He is out like a light. He is sawing logs. He's probably keeping the guards up next to him. He's out. How in the world can this man be sleeping at a time where you're like, I'm about to die? Because he understood who Jesus was. He understood that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that God is real, and that he has purchased him. And if he dies tomorrow, he is going to be with his Savior for eternity. And he's like, I'm good with that. And if not, I'm just going to keep doing what you call me to do, which is to share Jesus to the world around me. He's so asleep that when this angel of the Lord shows up, he's like, wake up, wake up. It's kind of like having a teenager. If you don't have one, you should get one. They're great. (laughs) They don't like to wake up. I got one that does, two that not so much. And so it's like, it's like trying to wake the dead, like get up, get up. And so that's literally what it is. The angel like smacks Peter to wake him up. He's like, all right. Get up. Get your clothes on. Get your sandals on. The shackles just fall off. He's like, oh, okay, whatever. And so then he grabs him, and he goes through one door and goes through a guard, and he's like, oh, there's a sleeping guy. And he goes, there's another sleeping guy. And he gets to the big gate that leads into the city, this huge iron gate. that would have weighed thousands of pounds. And it's like the first grocery store door that opens automatically. It's just like, boop. He's like, sweet. And then he goes into the city, right? He goes into the city, and then all of a sudden he's like, Wait, wait a minute. He was so sleepy, he literally thought that he was dreaming or having a vision. Now, we know that Peter's been known to get visions from time to time, so he's like, well, you know, this is the next one, whatever. Then he wakes up, he's like, wait, this just happened. This literally just happened. Like, I just got out of jail. And then the angel's like, see ya, angel's gone. It's nuts. It's so it's so crazy that this takes place that Peter's able to be in this spot where he doesn't even understand. He literally thought it was a joke. And what I love is that Peter could have taken off, because here's the thing. Um, last I checked, when you escape prison, they tend to look for you. And so he's probably thinking, like, I got to get out of dodge. I have to figure something out. Well what does he do? His thought immediately goes to the church. That's a good pastor. He doesn't think about himself. He thinks about his people. He thinks about the people that God's entrusted him with. And what I love is he's like, I know where they're going to be. I know exactly. They're going to be at Mary's house. And they're going to be praying. And they're going to be, they're going to be, be in the church. Is what they're going to be. That's where they're gonna be at. And so he goes to Mary's house. And this is what I love, and it's like kind of a sidebar you can talk about it in your life groups if you want. Like We see the proper interaction with people from different socioeconomic ba- uh, backgrounds in this moment. We have Mary who is in charge, so she'd be considered the master. And then we have this young girl named Rhoda, who is a servant there, and they're all together worshiping and praying and being the church. It's breaking down the barriers that we see that society has put up. They're praying together. And so it's so great. Peter's like, all right, here's the house. He knocks on the gate, trying to keep a low profile. And then like Rhoda shows up. He's like, Rhoda, it's me. Let me in. She recognizes his voice, which means that she's spent time with Peter. She knows Peter. She's a part of the church. She's engaged with doing ministry with him. And she's so excited, so joyful. She's like, It's Peter! And then she takes off. (laughs) And Peter's like, Seriously, you need to let me in. (laughs) And she runs in, interrupts the prayer meeting. If you've ever been in a place where a prayer meeting's been interrupted, Baptists get really angry. Like, Hey, 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 there's things happening here. Holy stuff, knock it off. And she's like, He's there. They're like, Who's there? Peter's out front. They're like, I love the response, you're crazy. That is literally the translation. You're crazy, Rhoda. And he's like, like, no, I'm not. He's there. It's like, ah, it must be his angel. I'm not going to get into that, but it's just crazy. And even if it was, seems like something you want to pause on and go have a conversation with. Still didn't want to go. And so the reality is, he's like, no, 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 it's him. They finally go to the door. It's just, it's insane. But here's what I wanted, before I get to, like, what ends up happening. Aren't we the same way when it comes to prayer? We pray and we pray and we pray earnestly. I mean, i got to imagine, they weren't just praying for the one night. I had to imagine this was a week-long prayer vigil for Peter to get out. And they are laser-focused on one thing. And then the one thing happens, they're like, nah. (laughs) He's been a week praying for this guy, and you're like, nah, couldn't happen. God wouldn't do that. You've been asking. Why don't you believe? <laughs> That's Aren't we the same way? We're so surprised when God answers our prayers. Because we doubt. Because we're doubting people. That's who we are at times. And here's what I love about God. God is answering their prayer even through their doubt. God is still working through our doubt when we pray. The question I would have for you is that Do you doubt that God can answer your prayer? Let me make it even more. Do you doubt that God is even listening to you? Because let me tell you something. You have a God that loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Do you not think that he loves you enough to listen to you? Do you not think that he cares about you? When he heard... The Israelites cry out in Egypt. He said, I heard your prayers. I heard your cries, and I've sent salvation. There's these things that happen at times in the gospel. You see the gospel all the time in God's word. This picture of Peter being saved reminds me of what Jesus did for us when it comes to our salvation. It really does. Let's, let's paint the picture. Peter was hopeless, in prison, chained, asleep, and condemned to die. Let me paint another picture of who we are in our sin. That we are hopeless and unable to save ourselves. That we are locked in a prison that we can't escape, separated from God. That we are chained by the sins that keep us from God, that won't allow us to be in relationship with Him. That we are spiritually asleep, unable to even recognize that we're asleep and distant from God. And we are condemned to die because we've rebelled against the God of the universe. We have a death sentence on our lives because we have rejected the God of the Bible. You're like, how have I done that? Anytime you don't trust God and you don't do what he says to do or you don't do what he doesn't say to do. And we all do it and we're all guilty of it, myself included, we're all in that boat. So we're all on a level playing field. Because you know, in the middle of the night, when you're praying and you're thinking about your life, that you're replaying all the things that you wish you wouldn't have done, that you wish you wish you would have done, that you wish people wouldn't have done to you. We know it. We feel it. But God sends his messenger, in our case, Jesus Christ, to come and pour out light on darkness. It wakes us from our spiritual sleep who takes the chains of sin off of us that keep us from God and frees us so we can follow Jesus and be in relationship with the God of the universe. And he offers that to you today if you would call on the name of Jesus for salvation. He loves his people. He extends that offer to all that would call on him to know that there is a death penalty for us. And Jesus says, I have taken that penalty. I have taken that wrath. I have taken that punishment so you can have life. I would imagine that Peter's experience of Passover that year might have been the most significant Passover he's ever had in his entire life, that it's the closest that he had ever been to experiencing what the Jews in Egypt felt when death passed over them, and he got to see death pass over his life in that moment. There are no coincidences. This happened at a certain time and a certain place to a certain person who would completely understand the message that was being proclaimed to him. And I would ask you today, as you think about your life, what has God set you free from? What has God saved you from? You ever think about that, where you once were? The last thing that I'll hit really quickly here is this. The fourth thing, telling others about God's mercy strengthens the faith. So Peter gets to the door, he comes in, he says, Hey, everyone, quiet down. And he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to know that God is a God who hears and answers prayers. That God has not abandoned them, though it may seem difficult, though it may seem hopeless, he is not. That he has done the impossible by saving them. And this little act of letting Peter go is nothing. It is nothing compared to the grand scheme of our salvation and being saved. See, God is growing his church, and he doesn't want them to lose hope. what they've been saved from, and what they've been called to. How can you encourage the church with what God has done in your life? See, there might be people that are struggling in different parts of their life, and they need to hear your story and what God has done in your life to put gas in their tank and to encourage them so they can continue being who God has called them to be in the church. As I end, my question is this. It's the same question I started with. What will you do when life gets hard? Who will you turn to? Because what you turn to is what you put your faith in. It's what you put your salvation in. And it's where you go to know that you will not be hopeless. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity.